0: Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today.
1: Ten years ago, Detroit made notorious history as the largest city in the nation to ever declare bankruptcy. It was an inflection point that wasn't just about finances, it also called our attention to decades of ills, both imposed on the city from the outside and perpetuated inside. We'll talk today about what has happened over the past decade, the good, the bad, the ugly, and discuss whether Detroit's future is indeed brighter for the pain it suffered 10 years ago. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Right today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us today. It was 10 years ago today that Detroit made history when it became the largest U.S. city to ever file for bankruptcy. It was a profound low. A city once at the forefront of industry and innovation found itself facing an unparalleled fiscal crisis. And it was the inflection point for decades of external disinvestment and abandonment, as well as internal poor decision-making. The bankruptcy happened simply because there was no other workable option. The city had borrowed to pay for borrowing that was paying for other borrowing. $18 billion in liabilities. If the city had sold everything it owned, it still would have been two-thirds short of being able to pay its obligations. Detroit was the dictionary definition of broke, and it had been pushed there by rich histories of all of our ills. Economic isolation, Mismanagement and financial gamesmanship, racism, complacency. Ultimately, then Governor Rick Snyder decided it made no sense to continue without making some grand effort to turn things around. So he used a controversial law to appoint Kevin Orr as the city's emergency manager, a position where Orr controlled city finances without ever being elected to office and could go around every elected official. In Detroit, to do the things he thought needed to be done, Orr led the city to and through Chapter Nine municipal bankruptcy, a process that lasted more than a year and saw a massive restructuring of debt and the sale of some assets. The city shed seven billion of that eighteen billion in debt and emerged in much better position to spend its money providing services for the people who live here, rather than using almost all of its money to pay creditors. Today, there's no question, the finances of the city of Detroit are in much better shape than they were when the city entered bankruptcy a decade ago. But there are still real questions about what the legacy of the bankruptcy is 10 years later. Are things better for the people who live here? Are we spending more on services that matter to Detroiters? Was the emergency manager necessary to do the things that were done 10 years ago? And what about the employees who saw their pensions, who saw their health care, in some cases, greatly diminished or taken away? as a way of reconciling the finances for the city of Detroit. What are their lives like 10 years later? A little later, we're going to talk a little more about the emergency manager law at the heart of the events 10 years ago with Anna Clark of ProPublica. She is someone who has not just followed the law as it affected Detroit, but also Written extensively in a book about how the emergency manager law played out in Flint, the unbelievable tragedy that unfolded in that city in the wake of the use of that law. We'll also hear from some former city employees whose pensions and health care were affected by the bankruptcy. We also want to hear from Detroiters during this conversation. Give us a call. Let us know what's going on in your community 10 years after the bankruptcy. That might be different than what we were experiencing before. Do you see the city doing things that it didn't or couldn't do before the bankruptcy? Are you somebody who's really skeptical that things are better? Maybe things haven't changed where you are. Maybe you feel like this is just one of the things that has happened to us in Detroit, not something that has happened for us. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones, 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can always include you in the program that way. But we want to start today with some insight into what the city's finances looked like before, during, and after bankruptcy. And to help us understand exactly what that looked like, I'm joined by someone I spent a lot of time talking to 10 years ago in the lead-up to the bankruptcy and during it. Eric Scorsoni is the director of Michigan State University's Extension Center for Local Government Finance and Policy. He is in my judgment, one of the foremost experts on municipal finance here in the state of Michigan and someone who really does know intimately what happened to us here in Detroit. Eric, great to have you here on Detroit Today. Good morning. Uh, First of all, 10 years. Boy, it does not seem like this was 10 years ago. It seems much more recent than that. Um, But 10 years ago, you and I spent a lot of time talking about how all this came together and what happened. Uh, let's go back to that time. Uh, tell us what the city's finances were like 10 years ago before the bankruptcy and whether in your judgment, this was, as I said, the only viable option to set the city on a different course.
2: hmm Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the city was borrowing to pay for the borrowing it had already done, and that's a typical strategy the state uses actually with many cities. So the city had loaded itself up with a huge amount of debt. Some of that debt was even more problematic because it was tied into derivatives and some other financial uh, schemes, let's call them. The city had a huge amount of fixed costs, which it just couldn't get rid of, the pension, the retiree health care. Now, those are real benefits to people, and I'm sure as you're going to talk to some folks later about how they've been impacted by those cuts. But that was the reality for city managers. They had a lot of fixed costs. And we have to remember revenues were declining rapidly. We were coming, you know, out of the Great Recession. City income taxes were way down. Property taxes were falling, and of course, the state of Michigan had cut revenue sharing, which it gives to all cities. So there was a, a tsunami of events occurring, and it was really—I can remember being in City Hall in the summer of that year and um, looking across the street at the Renaissance Center, thinking about GM's bankruptcy just a few years earlier. Mm-hmm. And so really Detroit was hit by these huge bankruptcies within a number of years that I think exemplifies how things had gone wrong in many ways. But, you know, that's where the city was. It was really at the worst case scenario of fixed costs, high debt and decreasing revenue. Yeah,
1: it was the largest municipal bankruptcy in the nation's history. But it also looked different than lots of other bankruptcy, maybe more uh, different from any other bankruptcy, either uh, chapter seven, nine or 11. Uh, Talk about how that happened and how important it was that the bankruptcy here didn't proceed as we've seen in some other cities and even in some other companies.
2: Right. A lot of times municipal bankruptcies take many years. They um, often don't really resolve the problems ultimately, as we've seen in places like California. Most of the time, most of these bankruptcies are quite small places or there are things like hospital districts or something like that. So it's, this was a kind of unique situation. Um, often it doesn't work very well. And so there was a lot of skepticism going into this process that it could be very bad and it may not ultimately resolve all the problems. So there was a, a risk taking involved in going into the bankruptcy process because it was so big and no one understood it. And you're right, like corporations, I mean, corporate bankruptcy is much more common. It's um, often resolved by you know, swapping debt for stocks and things like that. And obviously you can't do that mm-hmm. in, in Detroit in the same way, at least. So it was... A lot of risk, a lot of skepticism. A lot of the experts thought it wouldn't work or it would take too long. So we, we knew going into this, we we were entering a new realm. We didn't really know for sure what was going to come out of it.
1: And what did come out of it was really dependent on this thing we call the grand bargain, which saw almost a billion dollars in external money come into the resolution of the bankruptcy, something you also don't see A whole lot. Uh, Foundations and and other interests who were not parties to the bankruptcy came up with money to try to soften the blow to some creditors. Explain how that happened and whether that was the thing that that ultimately made this work for the city.
2: Right, that was key, because, without that, I think yeah, it would have been more like a traditional municipal bankruptcy. and going in, we didn't realize that would happen. The judge, I have to give a lot of credit, you know, sort of looked at creating this mediation process with another judge and and that really helped bring together these other parties to bring in these resources that were not were not necessarily there at the beginning, and so that clearly helped resolve some of the problems. Of getting this bankruptcy done much faster and probably it was not cheap but cheaper than it would have been otherwise and and so I think the grand bargain is a unique situation it certainly hasn't really happened in other municipal bankruptcies it basically meant you have nonprofit foundations you had the state of Michigan bring in something like 800 million dollars to help resolve the crisis in a way that was less painful than it would have been otherwise because In a bankruptcy, as you said, I mean, there's not enough money to go around. So the question is what they call a haircut. Who's going to get the haircut? And, you know, the retirees were one of the biggest creditor groups in this situation. And so that was, you know, the haircut was targeted at them. It was targeted at some of the bondholders. And in this situation, the grand bargain helped alleviate some of that. Um, Not all of it, of course. There was still some pain, of course, associated with this bankruptcy but that was a unique situation, and and you know every bankruptcy is probably different, so we can't necessarily assume that would happen again. Yeah, because there's talk of bankruptcy now in, in Highland Park. You can't assume that solution's always going to be there, um, and so I, I think we always have to be cautious that this is a not a one off, but it's certainly unique. Yeah. yeah.
1: So I want to read a Twitter comment that we have already about this, and have you react to it? It's something I hear a lot from Detroiters who, when they think about what happened 10 years ago and how we got past that point. Uh, Inspector Al on Twitter says, a lot of assets physically and financially were stolen, privatized. However, Detroiters are strong. Those still here are sharper. So I want to talk about the front end of of that comment, this idea that essentially things were taken from Detroiters, mm-hmm. and in his view, uh, taken unjustly uh, during the bankruptcy uh, a- as a way of stripping people here of the ability to, to control or own things. Is, did that happen? And if it did, uh, why did it happen?
2: So I would characterize it I mean I do remember there was an article in the LA Times about basically selling some of Detroit's art to the you know to Los Angeles as a way to resolve this. And I think that is kind of a way to think about this, you know, there were assets essentially given off to bondholders and others to resolve their debt issues. So were they stolen? I don't know if I'd use that language. I'll try and I'll let others decide if that's the right language to use. But there were absolutely assets transferred to other parties to resolve this this crisis. And so, you know, however you want to characterize that, it was part of the solution. There was, you know, land and other real estate given off to some of the bondholders, investors to deal with their, you know, what they were owed. Um, other assets were sold. Thankfully, the Detroit Institute of Arts was not sold. Of course, that was a uh, something that a lot of people were talking about at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, thankfully that was not done. But the you know that is true. There were assets transferred, and so I guess I would leave it to Detroiters to decide how to characterize what that was. But it was something that did happen, absolutely.
1: And is that something that always happens? You know, bankruptcy, is that something that we should have anticipated and expected out of the process?
2: Yeah, of course. Every bankruptcy, the judges, the parties, the other lawyers are gonna look at your assets because that's partly how you resolve it, because you sell assets to get, you know, some of the money. And so yeah, I mean, of course, every bankruptcy is gonna look at that. Now, how much of that occurs is of course unique to that situation, but going into a bankruptcy, you absolutely know that the assets are gonna be considered to raise funds to pay off the debt that is owed.
1: Yeah. I'm talking with Eric Scorsoni. He is uh, the director of Michigan State University's Extension Center for Local Government Finance and Policy, somebody who has paid pretty close attention to uh, municipal finance here in the state of Michigan, as well as the bankruptcy that is 10 years old today, the Detroit bankruptcy. We're talking about that bankruptcy, how we got there, how we got through it and what's happened in the 10 years since. Uh, we will also be talking a little more a little later about the emergency manager law that made the bankruptcy possible, but also has uh, created all kinds of other consequences for people in the state of Michigan. We're also going to hear a little later from the people who were impacted probably the most by the bankruptcy here in Detroit. And that's the city's pensioners, people who spent their lives working for the city of Detroit, had uh, benefits that they had earned over that time. And those benefits uh, had to be cut back to reconcile. Uh, the debts, the massive debt that we had here in the city of Detroit. We want to hear from you as well during the conversation. Give us a call at 313-577-1019 or go to to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and tell us what you make of the bankruptcy, the 10-year anniversary of the bankruptcy. Is the city better off? Is your neighborhood better off? Your community? Are things different uh, because the city has more money to spend providing services than it did before. It spends less sending it to creditors, uh, spends more on direct services. How does that show up in your world? Does it show up in your world? And if it doesn't, let us know whether you think the bankruptcy was the right choice, whether it was worth the pain that uh, we all had to endure to get through it. Again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number. Let's start today with Denise in Detroit. Denise, go ahead. Hi. Go ahead.
3: Oh, hi. Yes, I've lived in Detroit all my life, Mm -hmm. and I want to say I've noticed this difference after the bankruptcy. I want to say that Gilbertville is booming. That's no doubt. It's beautiful downtown, (laughs) but I rarely go down there because my spirit is just crushed because I live in the Harper-Van Dyke area, Mm -hmm. and over here we're drowning in poverty overwhelmed by cannabis stores, like driving another nail in a coffin. Mm. That's the only businesses that I see, which we don't own. I can look right out now, I'm looking out the window, and I see all this construction work going on, but I don't see me at all. They're rebuilding houses and things, It's incredible, but we don't own them. We're renting them. When I was a girl, I used to say, when I went downtown, I used to catch the bus downtown all the time with my mom, and my neighborhood, I lived on Mac and ellenwood mm-hmm. and it was predominantly black. Mm-hmm. And when I went downtown, I used to say, oh, this is where all the white people live. <laughs> because where I lived was solid black. But um, I, we've gone full circle. We've gone back to that. So, now I go downtown, and I'm just a guest funding the building of the city and come back home back to the same situation 70 years ago. Mm -hmm. I also work in the school system. Our children are still being poorly educated, and I see them the next 70 years in the same place Mm -hmm. we are today. It's crushing.
1: Denise, I really love that you called, and, of course, shared your experience. Um, I, I, I I do want to ask about whether um, whether you see services being provided in a different way after the bankruptcy than before and whether that matters to you or these things that you're talking about which are much broader issues whether you think that's that's more important. Well
3: yes I do think services are important but I find it very insulting that you think I should be so excited because you fixed a few street lights. (laughs) Well, as far as I've known, all the street lights over here have always worked anyway. Mm -hmm. The trash is still being picked up. It was before. What I do notice, though, is there's no increase in the police presence. Mm. I don't fault the police themselves because the times they have come, they've been wonderful. But when I go downtown, the police are everywhere, but all Harper and Van Dyke. (laughs) Where I need them, I don't see them. Yeah. So I don't see any differences in the service. Yeah. So I wish they would not mention streetlights
1: again. Yeah. Denise, I, I, I really love that you called and and shared not only your perspective, but also your passion about about what's going on in, in our city. Thanks so much for the call. Eric, two things. One is that the... The conceit, I think, of the bankruptcy and the the exit from bankruptcy, the plan of adjustment, the grand bargain, in part was that Detroit would be a more attractive target for investment, private investment. I think there was no question that most of that private investment would show up in downtown and places like that. Uh, At the same time, there was this promise that things would get better for Detroiters as well. And I think what Denise is saying is or is pointing out is, uh, there's a gap, right? We're not, we've seen a lot of one, not seeing as much of another.
2: Yeah. And I've heard that from other Detroiters and, you know, I think we all knew that downtowns can always come back because they have a lot of assets that people want to be part of. So I'm not surprised that that's what's happened. This sort of bifurcation, if you will, of sort of what's going on. And I think Detroit is going to have to do better for the neighborhoods. Um, who cannot afford, you know, some neighborhoods I know can't afford special assessments or other things to make their community better. But for a lot of communities, they can't. And and it, she makes an excellent point that, you know, downtowns are important. Probably most cities in Michigan have these complaints about, you know, the downtown gets a lot of focus. But I would agree that, you know, you you've got to look at these services beyond just street lighting and traffic and trash pickup. You know, how are we getting those other services out there to get a full recovery for Detroit, and I, you know, I think that's got to be the next ten years is really a focus on getting those things right. Yeah,
1: and, and opportunity. You know, one of the things that Denise is really pointing to is that if you live in many parts of the city, it feels as though there is no path to a better, a better, a better life in your neighborhood or elsewhere. And and no, the bankruptcy wasn't intended directly to to change that but i think the the implication was that that would be a better situation for detroiters after after it was done, and too many people don't feel like uh, that that has happened. Okay, we need to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Eric Scorsoni about the bankruptcy. We're going to add another voice to the conversation, Anna Clark, a Detroit-based reporter for ProPublica who has also written extensively about Michigan's emergency manager law, is going to join us. A little later, we're going to hear from some pensioners in the city of Detroit about how their lives changed after the bankruptcy we're also going to continue to hear from you our listeners on the phones and on social rick in huntington woods beverly on the west side of detroit we'll get to you if you want to join them 313-577-1019 is the number we'll be right back with more detroit today This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've joined us. It is the 10 year anniversary of Detroit's decision to file municipal bankruptcy, the largest municipal bankruptcy in U.S. history. We're talking about how we got to that very low point in the city's history, how we got through that low point in the city's history, and What's happened in the 10 years since? We've got Eric Scorsoni here with us. He's director of Michigan State University's Extension Center for Local Government Finance and Policy, somebody who has really uh, developed an incredible expertise about municipal financing here in the state of Michigan, and also uh, was, of course, uh, a close payer of attention to what happened here. In Detroit. Uh, I want to welcome another voice to the conversation as well. Uh, Anna Clark is a Detroit based reporter for ProPublica, also, uh, someone who wrote a recent article about the emergency manager law that made the Detroit bankruptcy possible. Anna, welcome back to Detroit Today.
4: Hello. Thank you for
1: having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Um, uh, Anna, I want to start with you and have you talk about your your recent piece about the emergency manager law. Uh, You know, it is still on the books. And uh, that's kind of remarkable, given the unbelievable tragedy that unfolded in the city of Flint in large part because of the emergency manager law. At the same time, I think I'm I'm not wrong to say I don't think any governor would go anywhere near that law at this point because of what happened uh, in Flint. But talk about the importance of that law still being around. And of course, the consequences that cities like Flint, Flint's not the only city to experience negative consequences, just the worst uh, because of the emergency manager law. This was not something that most cities found beneficial in any way.
4: Yeah, I mean, of course, it was like a fundamental part of what happened um, with Detroit's bankruptcy and also has been, you know... um, Hugely consequential for communities and school districts all across the state of Michigan. I mean, it's, um, uh, uh, it's, it was, the, the law is like um, an unusually expansive um, uh, system that um, sends like a state appointed emergency manager um, into a distressed community and um, they have the power that you know, that the mayor and the city council otherwise would have, as well as additional uh, powers besides. And, um, you know, of course, here in Detroit, you know, that was like a precursor to um, filing for bankruptcy. But, um, you know, in Flint, it's like it it was like an unusually dramatic case of some of the, you know, Uh, dangers Mm -hmm. of, 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 of a law that doesn't have, you know, of where, of where somebody holds so much authority and without, when there isn't any kind of like uh, checks and balances, when there is limited transparency, when there is, um, 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 an extended tenure, you know, of course, uh, Flint had like a series of four different emergency managers over three and a half years, um, uh, covering the time when all these like pivotal decisions were being made that, um, ended up affecting the community in uh, really devastating ways. And, of course, two of those emergency managers were, you know, faced criminal charges, um, Mm -hmm. you know, under two different prosecution efforts that um, eventually were dismissed. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting that this law, like despite having having played such a vivid role in the Flint water crisis, when even, like, Governor Snyder's own, you know, the commission appointed to, like, look into this, like, um, cited the law as, like – Um, as a contributing factor into this. Um, Governor Whitmer, you know, when she campaigned in uh, 2018 was um, uh, explicitly opposed to the law um, and and, and was challenging it. And uh, when the final, um, I remember when the final um, uh, community that still had some mechanism of state oversight you know, was restored back to its full local control. Like they signed a press release, like touting it, you
2: know, <laughs> like
4: they, and and even when and when reaching out to them for this like recent story about, um, about emergency management, you know, like folks, you know, are, are in the current administration seems, you know, real clear on like trying to associate it with the previous administration, you know, like governor <laughs> Snyder's emergency manager law. But yeah, I mean, like the Democrats do have, you know, a lot of the like pr- strongest, Critics like now have authority, um, um, but the law has, you know, has remained on the books. Um, it has is it is unchanged in any way. There's been a number of attempts to modify it, at, at, if not repeal it, um, over the years, um, and uh, at, at some, you know, one of which at least is uh, pending right now. But like to date, um, there, it's 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 the same as it was, you know,
1: mm-hmm. ten years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so so Eric, um I, I want to talk about your your sense of the law and and whether it's effective and how it could be changed, but I want to put it in a little bit of context. I have always interpreted the emergency manager law as a essentially a vehicle for for restricting what the states ability is to manage or to intervene in local finances, and the reason I say that is because uh, in the in the form of government we have, cities don't really exist in state constitutional structure. It is the state that is responsible for all of the money and all of the the, the borrowing that that cities undertake. If you didn't have an emergency manager law, essentially the only law that would control that relationship would be uh the 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 homestead the the cities act of uh i can't think of what i think it's nineteen eleven um that that would allow the state to take over anything at any time and do anything and so the idea of getting rid of the emergency manager law i don't know uh clearly the law we have is problematic and has led to really. Problematic consequences. At the same time, we do need a way to regulate the way the city, the state and cities interact. And I'm not maybe explaining that in the best way, but uh, I I would love
2: for you to to try to clear that up for our listeners. Sure. So yeah, that's absolutely right. The state is a sovereign entity. Local governments are not. And so basically. So, for example, in the 19th century, a lot of states would literally eliminate local governments. For example, the city of Memphis was shut down completely because of a plague that wiped out half the city's population in the late 19th century. The city was just gone, and then it was recreated later. That's that's not uncommon. Like, other states allow things. Like Montana allows you to shut down a city if it's too small. So this is not unusual, but... Yeah, we have to put it in context. Mm-hmm. What is true is Michigan's law is the most kind of draconian in the nation. Mm-hmm. It allows you to do things that generally you can in other states. I do also want to separate bankruptcy from emergency managers. There are many states that allow you to file bankruptcy that don't have an emergency manager law at all. And so we have to just separate the two things. Um, the law... Whether the law is effective or not is a very complex question, I think, actually. But I I would argue we don't need it. At the end of the day, we just don't need it. We have a whole series of laws that protect the finances of local governments. We need to use those laws better, in my opinion. they're, They're designed to protect us. They didn't work in Detroit. They, quite frankly, didn't work in Highland Park, the most recent situation we're facing. So we need to make those laws stronger. I think you know an NYU law professor wrote an article called Dictatorships for Democracy, and mm-hmm. he was actually right. And mm-hmm. He was a supporter of the law. Mm-hmm. But he's right in the sense that, look, the, lo- the law is premised on the notion that the problem is local officials, right. basically. Right. And I would argue that's only at best partially true. I'm not going to say it's not true at all. But the fact is, the state of Michigan creates a very negative environment for cities. We've actually measured this. Michigan almost always ranks in the bottom five of states as far as how we treat local government. So if we fix that, we probably don't need emergency managers that much. Other cities don't need these things. like You know what I mean? So like I think we have to- Other
1: states do a better job of investing in municipalities. Right. And we do a terrible job here.
2: Right. I mean, other northern states, I'm not talking about states that are growing. I'm talking about- Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, I mean, so these are not states like, you know, Texas or Florida. So I just think we have to think about the whole system. I I think EM law has to be looked in context of everything else. I know that's a complex story, but I just think, and I think Detroit's story with the EM and bankruptcy, we should probably separate the two and talk, you know, because really the bankruptcy is a separate process in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. Again,
1: 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. I do want to now get to some of the voices of the people who saw their pensions Reduced or taken away, health care benefits altered because of the bankruptcy. Uh, William Davis is president of the Detroit Active and Retired Employee Re- uh, Association. He retired in 2012 from the city of Detroit. William, welcome to Detroit today.
0: Uh, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah.
1: So give me a sense of what you feel about what we did 10 years ago here in the city of Detroit, declaring bankruptcy, how we got out of that bankruptcy, what it did to retirees. What does that look like for you and the people you work with?
0: Well, I would start off by saying that uh, I disagree with part of what you were saying in that I think that the bankruptcy was not needed. I think the bankruptcy could have been avoided. I think there was already mechanisms set in place where the city unions had already made, you know, offered them a plan with uh, Mayor Bean where they could have cut costs drastically, especially health care costs and other things. But the governor did not want uh, Mayor Bean to do that. And at that time, the city was under a consent decree, which limited some of the stuff that possibly could happen. Uh, Also, as it relates to the bankruptcy, you know, it's been good and bad in some ways in that it's good that the city Detroit has a vibrant downtown and a more a stronger economic base but uh, it is all basically on the back of, of the bank of the city chart retirees uh, you know because our health care cost was a big factor mm-hmm. and I can understand that uh, but you know like the pension cuts the cost of living uh, retroactively taken back and an annuity clawback, which is killing I mean literally killing, uh, city retirees, especially with infl- inflation.
5: Mm-hmm. Uh, in
0: fact, do you know that over 2,000 city retirees have died since the bankruptcy?
1: Wow!
0: Uh, you know that just since 2018, over 1,050 have died. Uh, you know, some of that is probably also due to, you know, the pandemic. You know, don't get me wrong. Sure. But you know, actually, more retirees have died up under the current administration than at any other time, even during World War II. Wow.
1: So, so William, um, I I would love to hear more about how you or the people that you work with just make do. How do you make ends meet when the thing that you have counted on being there your entire life is gone or, or altered? What are the what are the kinds of choices you find yourself having to make?
0: Well, you know, initially when the, the bankruptcy started, uh, I had two sons, you know, I still have two sons, but one was in high school and one was in college on you know, the Michigan State. Uh, my oldest son stopped going to Michigan State, even though I, I encouraged him to, uh, mm-hmm. because, you know, he thought that it was a hard financial burden on the family, especially, you know, not just the pension cut, but, you know, losing health care because they were still being carried on my health care. And you know after thirty four years of working for the water department, especially at the wastewater treatment plant, where well, the first thing they gave you was a shovel when you first came in. Mm-hmm. they were shoveling something else on us that was worse um, you know so it, it, it adversely affected my family, my my standard of living, uh, you know just you know and, and also you know it was a a way that generation of wealth for many retirees were stripped, you know, right. and that we had next to nothing to pass on. I think that's one of the reasons, if you look at, you know, what's been going on, you know, since the bankruptcy, number of black owned family homes that, you know, ownership has dropped drastically. Dropped. In fact, sure. the number of blacks inside the city of Detroit has dropped drastically, more so than at any other time. Yeah.
1: Yeah, William, I, I I really appreciate you calling and uh, being part of the program today, and of course wish you the best of luck with uh, you know the 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 consequences of of the bankruptcy, and of course to all of all of your members as well. Thanks so much for calling in.
0: Uh, my pleasure. Yeah.
1: Okay, we are going to take another quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue talking with Eric Scorsoni and Anna Clark about the bankruptcy 10 years later. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. If you want to join the show and let us know what you make of Detroit and uh, Detroit's fate 10 years after the bankruptcy, 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
3: For news that impacts your community
4: music that moves your soul and conversations that matter w d e t
3: detroit's npr station
1: this is detroit today at 1019 wdp stephen henderson and thanks for joining us 10 years today Since Detroit declared the largest municipal bankruptcy in U.S. history, we're talking about that bankruptcy, how we got there, how we got through it, and what's happened in the 10 years since. We've got two great guests with us who have paid lots of attention, not only to what happened here in Detroit, but also what's happened in other jurisdictions uh, with municipal finance and the state's emergency manager, Laura. Uh, Eric Scorsoni is the director of Michigan State University's Extension Center for Local Government Finance and Policy. Anna Clark is a Detroit-based reporter for ProPublica. We also want to hear from you on the phones and on social, three one three five seven seven. 1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. Uh, I want to go to uh, a particular caller here uh, with a particular expertise on this, uh, the Judge Honorable Wendy Baxter, who is the judge who wrote the opinion striking down the emergency manager law, the original emergency manager law. Uh, Judge Baxter, welcome to Detroit Today.
6: Thank you for taking my call.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, did I get that right? That, uh, that uh, my memory is not as good as it used to be, uh, that you wrote, you did write the opinion striking the original emergency manager law. Is that right?
6: I wrote the opinion in uh, Detroit Public Schools Board against Robert Bob, the okay. emergency financial okay. manager. That's right. Okay. Because that was the state of the law at that moment.
1: Right. Okay, that's right. See, uh, I, I, your memory is better than mine, obviously. Uh, but go ahead. Uh, what, what, what do you, uh, what do you want to add to that conversation here?
6: Well, I was told that they took my opinion to the legislative financial analyst and couldn't shoot any holes in it, so they changed the law to the emergency manager instead of emergency,
1: financial, emergency manager, financial manager, and that
6: was a quirk in my opinion because I decided that the school board was still in charge of curriculum according to the, all the statutes right. that govern schools in Michigan but they were definitely in charge of the money nothing I could say about that part of the lawsuit but the board was still in charge and it meant a lot to the locals because this was our school district mm-hmm. we wanted to have it curriculum that taught things that were important to the locals and it meant a lot to the community.
1: Yeah. Uh, Judge Baxter, I'm really glad you called and reminded us of that. Uh, It's an important, it's an important data point because it's not the only time in fact that the state went back and tried to change the law to get around uh, either a court ruling or a public sentiment about how this was all how this was all working. In your case, this was the switch from an EFM to a broader law that that gave emergency managers more power, stripped the 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 limitation uh, of their work to financial uh, matters, uh, and and then again later, after voters said they didn't want an emergency manager. Uh, law at all the state went back uh, re reframed it uh, and then passed it of course with with a provision that prevented uh, the public from from having a say about it so I mean again this this tension about the law is in part about the way in which state officials have pursued this kind of oversight over over cities and um,
6: may I just add that this is kind of a um, total attack on democracy because it is another way to usurp the rights of the voters Sure. and have their designs and wishes uh, not be the governing source.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Judge Baxter, I really do appreciate the call uh, and and the comments. Uh, Anna Clark, I'm going to go to you for a reaction to what the judge is saying.
4: Well, I think that I think it's first of all I love that she called in. <laughs> I think that um, really gets at like the you know um, core element of a lot of um, skepticism and resistance, you know, to the law, which is that it does cut against our, you know, the um, um, the voting rights and equal protection concerns, right? And and it's interesting too to remember is that like Detroit's, you know, that at the time that the city had um, an emergency manager in charge of its of, of, of this, of city hall. Like they also like simultaneously that was overlapping with the school districts, you know, long journey with like state oversight and emergency managers at the same time. And, you know, it it does seem like the law is kind of like premised on the idea that like the, 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 um, disinvestment in that community, um, is, um, you know, the, um, something that, um, can be like solved by just having, you know, having the right person, quote unquote, the right person, you know, like come in and have all the authority and they can just like clear up, you know, all the, all the issues. And then, you know sign off and then like move on mm-hmm. as, um, as opposed to like looking at like the l- larger, um, picture of the, of what are the causes of, um, disinvestment, you know, in these communities. And also just because, just to, not to put too fine a point on it too, it's like the emergency, there's a lot of communities that have struggled throughout Michigan in a number of ways, um, but it's majority Black communities that have been um, especially affected mm-hmm. by um, emergency managers too, which makes these like voting rights and equal protection, you know, um, concerns even more um, glaring. Um, and you know, like people have like you know resisted in a lot of different ways, like through uh, lawsuits and through like a lot of the organizing, you know, that happened among community groups, you know, throughout all of this. Um, and I think like when it comes down to it, um, then as now, like people just want to have, (laughs) people want to have agency in their own communities. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, like people deserve the, like, um, city services. People deserve, you know, like safety and, 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 and all these like, um, issues that were coming into play at the time of Detroit's experience with emergency management and bankruptcy. But, um, you know, they also like fundamentally like want and deserve like, um, um, the ability to fully participate, um, in their future. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Eric.
2: Yeah, I'd agree. I think the law, I mean, a couple observations, I guess, I think the judge, you know, that's a great point the judge made, you know, the going to an EM meant the EM had full power over the city versus the EFM, which was the old law, which actually the old law was in place for like almost 20 years. And, not used that often. Mm-hmm. I think it was used once or twice. Mm-hmm. I mean, I first learned about it in 2005. I think it, it really nobody even knew about it at that point. Really,
1: they used it in Benton Harbor, I right. believe, in in the early 2000s right. as that city was was first struggling with finance. Right, they, they did it, and then they had to do it again. Right, and they did they in it in Flint right? in the early
2: 2000s. Mm-hmm. In fact, some of the people involved in Flint were involved again in 2012. And yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I you know. It's it's a law that definitely premised on the idea that local officials are just out of control. They have to be taken in. I I will be honest. As an economist, we are trained to be sort of cold hearted and efficient. <laughs> and and I didn't realize I, it's taken lawyers and political scientists to kind of get me around to thinking about the due process, equal protection, and I'm much more cognizant now of those issues and how important they are. And I would agree. The law's premises are flawed, and I think there are other ways to do what we need to do. If there was a true crisis where a city could not pay, let's say, the police, and the police weren't going to show up for work, I think the state could step in and do things without an EM to make that thing right and then figure out why this happened. I just think there's other laws already in place. We just need to strengthen those laws, and we don't need an EM. We can do this in other ways. Well, and and as Anna pointed out, you've got— A Democratic majority
1: in Lansing in both houses of the legislature and in the governor's uh, office, this is maybe the opportunity, if they wanted, to to be able to sit down and think this through in exactly the way that uh, that you're talking about there. Uh, uh, again, Judge Baxter, really appreciate that you, you called in to the show. Let's go next to uh, George Orzek, who is part of the Detroit Fire <laughs> Department. Uh, George, uh, uh, we've only got a couple minutes left, and I apologize for getting you on so late, but I do want to get your perspective on Ten years after the bankruptcy, what's going on? What's going on with the the, the folks you work with?
5: Oh, good morning. Thank uh-huh. you. Go ahead, George. Uh, I don't work with them anymore. I, I do still sit on the pension board as a fire department retirees representative. Mm-hmm. And still battling the city and trying to fund a pension system that received no money from the city. And in the bankruptcy, they uh, chose to eliminate the public safety unions from negotiating any kind of benefits. So I retired in 2015 after the eighth amended plan of adjustment was
0: was passed.
5: Oh. And for the next ten years, there was no benefits. They took away a cost of living, but in my uh, time while I was chairman of the system uh, back when the bankruptcy uh, started there was uh, once they wanted to take the cost of living away I tried to get a program to work the cost of living back mm-hmm. through earnings through the percentages funding of the pension system and lo and behold once the 10 years is over uh, the, the mayor now Mayor Duggan and his lawyer chose not to fund a plan, according to the way our actuaries yeah. uh, plan. And then, the court and so you're
1: still—I mean, and so I mean—the long and short of it is, you are still—you're still fighting to make sure that uh, that you your members get what you what, what they deserve. Ten years after, after still all right. this, yeah, and okay.
5: and the most drastic uh, cut. Yeah, Is the health Is the
1: health care, sure. Yeah, George, I don't mean to cut you off, but we are out of time. I really appreciate you calling in and to everybody who called in to participate. It, it was a really important part of, uh, of this discussion. Thanks so much for being here. Anna Clark, Eric Scorsoni, of course, great to have both of you here as well. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow, and we're going to look at the price of technology and innovation and ways we can improve in these spaces. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.